the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. I hope you had a great weekend. Today we're going to hear from Mo Aiken, author of Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. The book is published by Baker. As we are um, wrestling through <laughs> guests for this week, I guess only James will uh, we'll get that anyway. We'll also take a look at headline news um, and Oregon's initiative, at least they hope it will be one, to ban animal slaughter and breeding. So if you enjoy a hamburger, you might want to reconsider that as this is an effort here in the state of Oregon. There's a whole lot more to talk about, so we'll get into that jumping in with boat feet. Well, San Diego had a boat capsized, four were killed, 24 injured in a possible smuggling operation. A boat off the coast of San Diego overturned. It was Sunday morning. It killed, as I mentioned, four, injured 24, one critically, and what authorities say was a smuggling operation. These are very dangerous uh, undertakings. So well, the incident happened around 10:15 a.m. off Point Loma near um, Cabrillo National Monument. Lifeguards, the U.S. Coast Guard, and other agencies responded to the scene after reports of an overturned vessel in the surf near the Rocky Peninsula. Authorities recovered three bodies in the surf, San Diego Lifeguard Service Lieutenant Rick Romero said. One person was rescued from a cliff. Twenty-two others managed to make it to shore. Once we arrived on scene, the boat had basically been broken apart. Conditions were pretty rough, five to six feet of surf, windy, cold. Well, 27 people were transported to hospitals with varying degrees of injuries. That's according to Homeland Security spokesman uh, Jose Yesia. Most were able to walk themselves to ambulances. It was unclear where the people on board originated from. The uh, captain of the boat is reportedly in custody and speaking with investigators. In other developments, the White House chief of staff says the border surge is not President Biden's fault, despite lifting restrictions. I would love to have heard the other half of that conversation in which he explains why it's not his fault. Government, or rather, Governor Abbott says President Biden abandoned the rule of law at the border, sending Texas uh, costs soaring. And President Biden claims we're ne- we've now gotten control of the migrant surge at the southern border with all the criticism that's swirling. Two border uh, state Democrats have broken with Biden on the crisis. They want to see more action. A tornado caused damage in Tupelo, Mississippi. While residents were advised to take cover, a potentially significant tornado was confirmed on the ground and moving across the city of Tupelo, Mississippi, about 115 miles southeast of Memphis, Tennessee, on Sunday evening. This is a life-threatening situation. The National Weather Service in Memphis wrote, Please take shelter in the Tupelo area. The storms are very dangerous. Uh, Calhoun County Sheriff Greg Pollan, 
He told Tupelo's uh, local radio, or rather television station, that the storm caused damage to light poles, trees, vehicles, and several businesses. He asked residents to stay off the roads as emergency personnel worked to clear debris. The mayor's office in the city of Tupelo wrote that emergency crews are currently assessing the degree of the damage. Please do not get out and drive. It is dangerous. There are reports of power lines shut down in the roads. We'll update you as soon as we know the extent of the damage. Prayers that all are safe. And please keep our crews and first responders in your prayers. Also, the mayor's office wrote on Facebook. Well, in other developments, tornadoes and baseball-sized hail slammed the southern U.S. and tornadoes touched down in Texas, while severe weather is expected in the southeast. One thing I'm grateful for is that we are not tornado-prone. And we've seen a few of them, but they're not like what you see uh, in these areas I've just mentioned. Meanwhile, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton is warning of huge consequences over the Afghanistan withdrawal announced and now underway by President Biden. Hillary Clinton on Sunday warned of huge consequences, in quotes, from President Joe Biden's decision to withdraw the troops from Afghanistan. The president announced plans last month to withdraw the remaining 2,500 troops from the area where the U.S. has been at war for nearly 20 years. All U.S. troops are expected to leave the country By September 11th, as the U.S. begins its withdrawal, the former Secretary of State was asked by CNN about Biden's decision. Well, it's been made, and I know it's a very difficult decision, Clinton told the network on Sunday. This is what we call a wicked problem. You know, there are consequences, both foreseen and unintended, of staying and of leaving. The president has made the decision to leave. Well, Clinton noted the potential of two huge consequences that the U.S. government should focus on. She said there is a potential collapse uh, off Kabul and the takeover by the Taliban and the resumption of global terrorist activities. I think these two huge sets of issues have got to be addressed, she said. I mean, it's one thing to pull out troops that have been uh, supporting security in Afghanistan, supporting the Afghan military, uh, leaving it uh, pretty much to fend for itself. But we can't afford to walk away from the consequences of that decision. Well, the former start of the final phase of the Afghan pullout by the U.S. and NATO has officially begun. The U.S. has denied a report of a prisoner swap deal with Iran and the release of $7 billion in frozen funds. It's a developing story. We'll continue to follow it. And President Biden says he wears a mask outdoors as an extra precaution, according to a White House aide. Well, cancel culture, rather, uh, is targeting an iconic Disney character once again. It's the true love kiss grand finale between Snow White and her prince that's drawing the scrutiny from the San Francisco gate. A kiss he gives her to um, gives to her without her consent while she's asleep, which cannot possibly be true love if only one person knows it's happening. So beware, I guess, is the uh, the warning. The pandemic prompted them to return home, and now they're staying. Apparently, young adults around the country flocked to their parents' homes with the pandemic. Now some are staying, finding that they like the security and benefits of living close to family, along with the familiarity of being in their hometowns during a time of high uncertainty. More than half of all 18 to 29-year-olds began living with their parents after U.S. coronavirus cases began spreading in early 2020, according to a Pew Research Center analysis of monthly Census Bureau data. This sur- surpasses the previous peak during the Great Depression era. And that's uh, that's really saying something. Meanwhile, global microchip shortage that has uh, China eyeing 
Taiwan. And of course, there's lots that goes along with that. Well, the White House is no longer so sure about reopening schools. From a CNN tweet, Anita Dunn, an advisor to the president, says that schools should probably reopen in September if people continue to get vaccinated, adding that it's not absolute because it's an unpredictable virus. Mark Hemingway says kids have been in person at private schools all year. We know plenty about the risks. This is about teachers unions, not kids. And Carol Markowitz says, while much of grown-up America moves on, our children are trapped in the forever pandemic. She goes on to blister the dishonesty coming from many of the so-called experts. Tim Carney finally tweets, I think the lockdowns and Trump broke millions of brains. We know uh, um, solitary confinement is crazy making. We know being too online is bad for mental health. The outdoor vaccinated masking is an instantly insanity symptom caused by all of this. Well, a uh, respected English doctor is battling an effort to let children change their gender. And the foreign media is actually reporting on children who are now adults and regret their decision that was condoned and acted upon by adults who should have known better. Abigail Shire says England is reckoning with the fast tracking of uh, youth to uh, gender transition in a way that America is not. In America, the medical scandal of the decade is still being covered up by the legacy media. Proponents of critical race theory were clobbered in Texas at a local election. From the story out of South Lake, Texas, the contest was not close. Candidates backed by the conservative South Lake Families PAC, which has issued more than $200,000 since last summer, won every race by about 70% to 30%, including those for two school board positions, two city council seats, and mayor. More than 9,000 voters cast ballots three times as many and is as rather in similar contests in the past. Well, New York stores are struggling as workers stay home. Of course, they're struggling everywhere. We'll tell you more about that and continue our look at some of the day's headlines right here on the Georgine Rice Show. Again, coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Mo Aiken, fully known, an invitation to true intimacy with God. The book is published by Baker Books. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, New York stores, like stores all across the Fruited Plain, I would imagine, are struggling as workers stay home. Well, a big uh, shift toward working from home is endangering hundreds of locally owned Manhattan storefronts that have been um, hanging on, waiting for life to return To the desolate streets in Midtown and the financial district, the fate of these stores and by extension, the country's two largest business hubs is going to hinge in large part on how long landlords will keep offering the rent breaks that have kept many retailers afloat. Well, landlords themselves are under growing financial pressure as office uh, uh, vacancies rather soar and commuters and visitors stay away. Well, Bruce Caitlin Jenner says men shouldn't should not compete in girls' sports. Well, the man formerly known as Bruce recognizes it's just not fair, and we have to protect girls' sports in our schools. You can read more about that in the Daily Caller. Meanwhile, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says he's going to sign a bill banning males from competing against girls. Well, Lubbock, Texas declares itself a sanctuary city for the unborn after approving an ordinance banning abortion within city limits. Well, China continues its efforts to eradicate Christianity from their country. 
clearly an exercise in futility. If they'd only read the scriptures, they would understand that. And they're not alone. From the story, the Xi regime now bars children from services. Of course, that's not altogether new. And uh, in mid-April, Asia News reported that the government shuttered a Catholic orphanage run by the sisters of Zhao Jian in Hebei province. Well, the authorities gave no explanation, but the CCP likely wanted to uh, end contact between the nuns and the children, many of whom were disabled. The action also furthers the campaign to close faith organizations. Again, an exercise in futility. The underground church is alive and well. We'll tell you a little bit more about that later in the program as we share the story of um, an inmate in one of China's prisons who is being held because of their faith. An Oregon animal rights group is seeking to make it illegal to kill animals for food in the state of Oregon. And in case that isn't enough, they want animal breeding to be declared illegal as well. Their hope is to get enough signatures to get this on the 2022 ballot, again, in the state of Oregon. And on this day in history, 1979, Conservative Party leader Margaret Thatcher is chosen to become Britain's first female prime minister as the Tories oust the incumbent Labour government in parliamentary elections. 1802, on this day in history, Washington, D.C. is incorporated as a city. What it will be in the days ahead under Democrat rule? Well, remains to be seen. 1948, the Supreme Court in Shelley versus Kramer rules that covenants prohibiting the sale of real estate to African-Americans or members of other racial groups are legally unenforceable. I wish they had said unconstitutional, but they went as far as to say unenforceable. I guess we had to settle for that at that time. Well, an Oregon ballot initiative, as I mentioned, proposed for 2022, would effectively criminalize the farming of food animals in the state by classifying their slaughter as aggravated abuse and redefining artificial insemination and castration as sexual assault. Initiative Petition 13, filed with Oregon elections officials in November, would remove farmer exemptions from existing laws barring animal cruelty and specifically target practices used for breeding domestic livestock and equine animals. That's according to the text of that initiative. Now, the proposal, the proposed rather abuse, neglect and assault exemption modification and improvement act, a mouthful, would delete all reference to good animal husbandry from the state statute and only allow an animal to be injured in cases of a human self-defense. A veterinarian spraying and neutering of household pets would still be exempt. Well, the initiative sponsor, a group called End Animal Cruelty, is beginning to gather the 112,000 signatures they'll need uh, by next summer and is working through the National Progressive Network, Act Blue, to recruit volunteers for the effort. Animal activist David Michelson recently told Portland's KBU FM, uh, their donor-supported radio station. Now, that's precisely where one would expect to hear about the initiative and the um, progressive network at Blue to recruit volunteers. Now, I have no doubt in the state of Oregon, particularly in the more liberal areas, Multnomah, Washington, Lane, and other counties, they'll probably gather enough signatures, but what happens from that point forward is doubtful. It would radically transform how we treat animals in the state of Oregon, Michelson told the uh, station, again referring to KBU. Well, if this passes, he told the station, Oregon would essentially be a sanctuary state for animals and animals in the state of Oregon would have their rights uh, more or less codified in law, that they deserve a life free of abuse, neglect or sexual assault. I would be very interested in finding out his views on 
abortion in the state of Oregon. Well, Michelson said that the initiative wouldn't ban animal agriculture entirely, nor would it abolish the sale of meat, leather or fur in Oregon. But livestock would have to die of natural causes before it could be used for food production and forced impregnation um, of livestock would be outlawed, he said. Violators would face criminal prosecution. Representatives of the Yes on IP13 campaign didn't return uh, emails from the Farm Progress seeking comment. Well, livestock groups say that the initiative has dangerous implications for their industry. They note that language in the proposal specifically targets livestock transportation, poultry production, uh, commonly accepted slaughter methods, as well as fishing, hunting, trapping, wildlife management, and other animal-related activities. Uh, from my experience, uh, says um, Oregon's Cattlemen's Association Executive Director Tammy Deeney, uh, from my experience, I can tell you the reason the cattle industry leans heavily on artificial insemination is uh, improved genetics, which means they're more efficient with feed, more efficient with every aspect, including rate of grain, Uh, It certainly would be problematic to have that taken away. If you really boil it down, we're talking about local food production, she says. There's a high degree of consumer awareness about purchasing local and understanding the local food supply. And you do not get better local food production than with local beef producers. So keep your uh, eyes and ears open. That is an effort where there's an attempt to... um, place this on the ballot. By the way, Oregon's roughly 12,000 beef producers raise about 1.3 million head of cattle in the state's 36 counties, according to the OCA. Uh, In addition, many Northern California ranchers truck thousands of head of cattle into Oregon for summer pasture as cows have a nine-month gestation cycle. AI for spring calving would happen in the summer. So this has very broad implications, not just in Oregon, but elsewhere as well. Well, an Oregon lawmaker who let um, demonstrators into the state capitol during the December 21st special session has been criminally charged with first-degree official misconduct and second-degree criminal trespass. Representative Mike Neerman, a Republican out of Independence, was caught on security videos opening a door and allowing demonstrators to enter the building. He had been under investigation since at least January for enabling that breach. Well, the first-degree official misconduct charge is for allegedly knowingly taking action that constituted an unauthorized exercise of his official duties to benefit someone else, according to court filings. The second charge is for allegedly abetting another person to enter and remain in the Capitol. The charging document was signed and filed in Marion County Circuit Court on Friday. Oregon's capital has been closed to the public for at least a year due to the pandemic. On the 21st of December, lawmakers were in the building for the third special session of 2020, which Governor Kate Brown called to extend the state's eviction moratorium, create a relief fund for landlords and pass wildfire and COVID-19 related funds. Well, as House lawmakers debated rules for the one-day proceeding, around 8.30 a.m., Neerman left the chamber and exited a door near where uh, the demonstrators had gathered to protest the state's coronavirus restrictions. Well, demonstrators, including some carrying rifles, were circulating outside the north face of the Capitol, and one man carrying a large flag waited just outside the door that Neerman opened, according to security uh, footage. obtained through a public records request. Well, Nehrman exited and walked around the man with the flag, making no effort to uh, keep him from entering the Capitol. Surveillance video showed that once Nehrman allowed demonstrators into the Northwest Capitol vestibule, 
the uh, group clashed with Oregon State Police and Salem Police, who tried to keep them out of the building. Demonstrators attempted to push past police, who rushed to eject the initial insurgents and physically blocked the doorway Nearman had just opened. But after the demonstrators sprayed police with a substance that was reportedly pepper spray, the largely um, white crowd, including a number of older people and a dog, succeeded in pushing its way into the vestibule. Oregon State Police and Salem Police obtained a rather contained the raucous crowd, some of whom were armed with guns to the vestibule of the Capitol and ultimately removed them from the building. At least two men alleged to be part of that breach have since been arrested on related charges and additional demonstrators were arrested in connection to other actions later that day. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the second hour of today's program, we'll hear from Mo Aiken, Fully Known, an invitation to true intimacy with God. Second hour of today's program. Well, police arrested six people on Saturday here in the city of Portland, most during a direct action. That's what they call it, demonstration on Saturday night that damaged city hall and businesses downtown. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sick of the whole thing. Well, it's the tale of two cities. That's what Tim Gordon, that's how he described it uh, in his column, I believe, at KGW. Over and over for the past year, we've seen the rough side of Portland at the hands of a group of people doing what they call direct action uh, marches. Now, I want to just a side note. I received an email uh, this morning from a listener from Calgary, Canada. Now, don't ask me how that is the case, but he was uh, calling to say that he enjoyed the program and, you know, some other things. Uh, and one of the things that he mentioned was, particularly from uh, Portland, which is the epicenter of so much of what's going on in the United States with regard to these direct action protests. We are known across the uh, the world as being the epicenter. Now, those of us who live here have some... Um, idea of the scale of it all, as annoying and destructive as it is, but to other places around the country, they see this as um, kind of the hub of much of what's going on in the country, and they wouldn't be altogether wrong. Uh, Anyway, each time a few in each demonstration break windows and do other damage to businesses, and sometimes even nonprofits and churches, all of which has been done recently, then police make some arrests, find things like knives, slingshots, hammers in the process. Well, in the light of day, Pioneer Courthouse's uh, square looks inviting with folks enjoying some sun on the bricks. But native Portlander Ricky Grigsby is also seeing the damage and calling it out. Again, quoting from Tim Gordon's uh, piece at KGW, I don't see any sense in breaking windows. That's stupid. I don't mind marching up the streets and everything, but then you're going to start breaking windows. No, this is one of our fellow residents. Well, at a table nearby, three guys are enjoying a meal and conversation that had uh, turned to Portland and what's happening. We all live around the city core, and it's really quite nice. And a lot of this stigma is kind of overrated. Unless, of course, you are the object of it or you were called upon to pay for it. That said, one of them doesn't agree with the vandals' tactics. At another table in the square was uh, Natalie Torres and her children. The whole family came up from uh, Monmouth to visit the city they love. And uh, she says she noticed that all of the windows are boarded up. Uh, There's a lot of tagging, that there's a lot of trash on the sidewalks. Speaking of which, driving through the city of Portland and, and beyond just breaks my heart. I was around during Tom McCall, and it was um, it, it was uh, drummed into us as young children, which stayed with us as young adults. 
and eventually as middle-aged people that you keep Oregon clean, you pick up after yourself. And to see where we are today is is shameful. Uh, anyway, Portland is still known for food carts and a friendly way, but we found no support this Sunday at Portland's living room square for the violence, gratuitous aggression, and property damage at nighttime demonstration. Yeah, it's pointless, Torres, one that I've already quoted. I don't think there's a need for it. I think what needs to be uh, heard is being heard, but then there's uh, people, there are people uh, that are adding chaos because they have nothing better to do. Well, they do have something better to do. They choose not to do it. Well, police arrested this m- most recent uh, event, six people, all but one of them during the nighttime riot. They also confiscated various weapons from a knife to a slingshot to a hammer. And it continues. Now, the good news is the mayor seems to be getting a bit more serious about holding uh, individuals who are responsible accountable. It is perhaps too little and certainly too late, but I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and we'll watch what happens as the weather warms and the prospect of uh, these events escalating uh, moves into the uh, the months ahead. Well, Biden has apparently flip-flopped on U.S. racism. What prompted the White House message? Well, this is rather confusing. After a year of slamming the United States as systematically racist, the president now says, I don't think the American people are racist. Now, I'm not sure how you square those two things. Um, maybe because his vice president uh, says she doesn't believe America is uh, systematically racist. Um, maybe his handlers have called upon him to adjust his view on the subject. How can a country be racist if its people are not? That's the question. Well, a country is not defined by skyscrapers or cattle ranchers or foundries. It's not defined by spacious skies and amber plains or even its system of government. A nation is defined by its citizens. Its people determine whether a country is optimistic, educated, hardworking, fair-minded, and whether it's racist. Well, surely a country cannot be racist if its people twice elected a black president or if they back policies demanding equality. Uh, We have laws banning discrimination. We have jury trials that convict white cops who kill black men. And we have schools. One indication that the U.S. is not racist is the uh, is this. Even though whites constitute 60 percent of America uh, of Americans and presumably control many levers of power, they're not the most prosperous group as measured by median household income. Now, indeed, it is Indian Americans who earn by far the highest incomes in the U.S. and more than 119,000, followed by Taiwanese Americans, Filipino Americans and Chinese Americans. White Americans are only the ninth most prosperous group with a median incomes just shy of 66,000, according to the Census Bureau. Now, I, as an African-American woman, am not suggesting there isn't racism in the country, but it comes in all stripes. It generates from Caucasians and it generates from African-Americans and everything in between. Well, black Americans rank last with medium average income at 41,500, but it's hard to con- uh, to conclude this reveals bigotry when other non-white ethnic groups fare well. Now, in addition, studies for from a few years ago show black immigrants earning 30 percent more than native born blacks. And that suggests skin color is not the only issue. Now, President Biden made his head spinning comments in an interview with NBC when asked to respond to the declaration by Senator Tim Scott, the um, 
Republican from South Carolina, the African-American, the first senator to represent a southern state in U.S. history, that America is not a racist country. Twice the president agreed with the Republican senator from South Carolina. As I mentioned, Vice President Kamala Harris said something similar recently, telling ABC News, I don't think America is a racist country, but we also do have to speak the truth about the history of racism in our country and its existence today. Those are two separate things, and I would agree. Maybe Biden and Harris are backpedaling because they realize they've overplayed the race card. Polling shows America's concern about racism has uh, dropped sharply in recent months because discrimination is now the remedy to what uh, is being called discrimination. Even as worries about immigration, unemployment and budget deficits have soared. Well, they and other Democrats have put race at the center of every issue. According to the left's systematic racism should drive our policies on education, mathematics, immigration, climate change, and a host of other issues, including how to handle COVID-19. If you disagree, you are a bigot and will be canceled. Well, Scott said in his speech, a hundred years ago, kids in classrooms were taught the color of their skin was their most important characteristic. And if they uh, looked a certain way, they were inferior. Today, kids again are being taught that the color of their skin defines them. And if they look a certain way, they're an oppressor. Americans know this indoctrination is toxic and will destroy our nation. Race is important to Democrats who count on receiving roughly 90 percent of the uh, black vote. It is especially important to Biden uh, were it not for African-Americans uh, handing him the Democratic primary win in South Carolina. He would not be president. Hence, payback to the black community figures prominently in his ongoing spendathon. White farmers are suing the administration. They're claiming that billions set aside in the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan for black farmers is discriminatory. Some may think that the $25 billion directed to building research infrastructure at historically black colleges and universities and other minority college groups in the American Jobs Plan similarly smacks of political favoritism. Now, some Americans are speaking up. Oklahoma and Idaho, they're moving to ban teaching critical race theory in state schools. And 39 GOP senators have warned incoming uh, Education Secretary Miguel Cordona against rolling out that offensive and misleading dogma nationally. Now, a father of one of New York's most uh, prestigious private schools publicly denounced its obsession with race and bashed the administration for kowtowing to an anti-intellectual, illiberal mob, sparking a firestorm, but also uh, speaking for many parents. Well, I will end it at this point, but these are issues of great import, and it seems that the president seems to be backpedaling and should on the issue himself. There are important issues that need to be recognized, uh, discussed, debated, accommodation perhaps made. Uh, but the notion of systematic uh, racism and the remedy for it is simply unacceptable if you believe in non-discrimination and fairness. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I was just talking about the president who has moderated his position on whether or not the United States is, is uh, plagued by systematic racism. Well, as recently as last summer, a few people outside academia, academia to say that more correctly, had heard of critical race theory, the central claim of which is that racism, not liberty, is the founding value and guiding vision of American society. Well, then President Trump issued an executive order last September. He banned the teaching of this malign ideology, in quotes, to federal employees and federal contractors. 
Well, President Trump's ban was blocked by a federal judge in December and immediately revoked by Joe Biden upon occupying the White House in January. Well, since then, federal agencies and federal contractors have resumed staff training on uh, unconscious bias, uh, microaggressions, systematic racism and white privilege, some of the most common but also most disputed concepts associated with the four decade old academic theory. Well, now critical race theory is uh, about to face a major real world test, a spate of lawsuits alleging that uh, it encourages discrimination and other illegal policies targeting whites, males and Christians. Uh, but unlike Trump's executive order, which ran into First Amendment problems by prohibiting controversial speech, the lawmakers name specific policies and practices that allegedly discriminate, harass, blame and humiliate people based on their race. For example, the uh, the training that you ought to be ashamed if you happen to have been born white. Now, this was a decision uh, not made by your parents, not made or chosen by you. This was a decision that God made before the foundation of the world and to suggest that anyone ought to be ashamed uh, by what they are born to be, referring to race, uh, runs counter to everything I know to be true and certainly counter to scripture. This would mean replacing the colorblind idea, this uh, the curriculum that we're now seeing across the country and in classrooms as well, replacing the colorblind ideal of Martin Luther King and others of treating all people equally, which has been widely viewed as the crowning achievement of the civil rights movement with a contrary strategy, implementing race-based policies, which can range from affirmative action to reparations for compensating African-Americans for the injustices of the past and for producing equitable outcomes in the future. Well, critical race theory is the uh, Trojan horse of sorts. That's how um, one Los Angeles lawyer representing two white men who are suing two California state environmental policies uh, put it. It disguises itself as the gold standard of fairness and justice, but in fact relies on vilification and the idea of permanent oppressors and oppressed races. Its goal is not ensuring that all people play by the same rules regardless of race, but equity, which is a euphemism for race-based outcomes. Well, about a dozen lawsuits and administrative uh, complaints have been filed since 2018 with another wave planned this summer by conservative public interest law firms and private attorneys. Their goal is to withdraw or rather to draw attention to some of the more pronounced practices and win court judgments to slow down the spread of critical race theory in K through 12 schools, government agencies and other organizations. Now, a pair of lawsuits filed in 2019 by four white women against the uh, New York uh, City public school system, alleged that a diversity trainer told employees white colleagues must take a step back and yield to colleagues of color and that they should recognize that values of white culture are supremacist. Now, which values in particular, the values that they share with uh, uh, the culture in general or just uh, those that they hold out in general, it's, it's again, not clear. You happen to be white, whatever your uh, values are, they have to be subordinated. Well, California suit filed last year by the two, uh, by another one, by two white men alleges that the state hosted a discussion series in 2020 in which speakers stated that any disparate outcomes in society must be the result of white supremacy. Uh, again, I'm not going to delve much deeper into it, uh, but it does expose 
some of the what I would consider the core weaknesses of the trend that we seem to be and the direction we seem to seem to be moving toward. My hope is that we would find our equilibrium again, certainly drawing attention to instances where racism is identified uh Designing remedies, I think um, police reform was the right direction to go rather than abolishing the police where um, uh, communities of color suffer the most when they are no longer present. Uh, but that isn't the way that we have been heading in of late. So I'm, I'm hoping that this will help us to reach an equilibrium in which fairness and equality is once again the hallmark and the goal. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell says zero Republicans will back Biden's infrastructure package. No Republican senator will back President Biden's infrastructure plan as written. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said at a press conference today, I don't think there will be any Republican support, none zero, for the $4.1 trillion grab bag, which has infrastructure in it, uh, but a whole lot of other stuff, McConnell told reporters. We're open to doing a roughly $600 billion package, which deals with what all of us agree is infrastructure. If it's uh, going to be about infrastructure, let's make it about infrastructure. Well, McConnell's reference to a $4.1 trillion grab bag would include Biden's roughly $2 trillion infrastructure package, as well as his $1.8 trillion American Families Plan, which invests heavily in education and child care, but not in ways that you might expect. Well, the minority leader has previously vowed to fight the infrastructure bill every step of the way. My view of infrastructure is that we ought to build that which we can afford and not either whack the economy with major tax increases or run up the national debt even more. That's what he said back in April. Well, in addition to repairing roads, bridges and other infrastructure networks, the Biden infrastructure bill provides $174 billion towards a national network of charging stations for electric vehicles, along with other incentives to manufacture EVs. Senate Republicans have proposed a $568 million, excuse me, billion dollar infrastructure plan that would upgrade roads, public transit and rural broadband access over the next five years. However, with the Senate tied 50-50 and Vice President Kamala Harris as the tiebreaker vote, Democrats will likely attempt to pass their infrastructure plan via budget reconciliation uh, rules. Now, those rules allow legislation to pass the Senate via a simple majority vote rather than the filibuster-proof 60-vote threshold. So trying to get around what has been in place uh, historically is part of the tactic or the tack that the Democrats seem to be looking for to pass the president's plan. Meanwhile, House Republicans are questioning the president's naive plan to send cash to Central America to stop migration. The president has proposed $4 billion investment in Central America to push the tackle to push to uh, the um, root causes. Republicans on the House Oversight and Budget Committee are questioning a report uh, on the plan by the administration to send cash payments to Central America as part of a strategy to combat the root causes of the migrant crisis, accusing the Biden administration of trying to buy its way out of the crisis. Well, Representatives James Comer and Jason Smith, the ranking members of the House Oversight and Budget Committees, wrote to Acting Office of Management and Budget Director 
Yolanda Young expressing concern about a plan for a conditional cash transfer program to address the root causes in Central American uh, leading to the border crisis. In the midst of a border crisis propelled by the Biden administration reversing successful deterrent policies, it is worrisome that the administration's solution isn't to reinstate those policies or replace them with workable solutions but instead to funnel more money to pay countries to dissuade their citizens to break U.S. laws, particularly countries with corrupt concerns, the letter obtained uh, says. Robert Jacobson, the White House's outgoing southern border coordinator, told Reuters about the proposal last month and said it would be targeted at Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, the three northern triangle countries that are the source of much of the migration coming to the border. We'll continue to follow that developing story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We have news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. During my uh, first few segments of the program, I talked about the fact that Mr. Xi, president of China, uh, is attempting to eradicate, uh, eradicate Christianity from the country. And I was reminded of the underground church and how vibrant it is. How one cannot, and I'm sure Romania and Russia and other parts of the globe can affirm this, uh, it's impossible to eradicate the move of God and the church of Jesus Christ as it um, ministers to and changes the hearts of individuals. And I thought it would be in good taste to spend some time considering uh, what life inside a Chinese prison is like. And uh, as I've um, experienced, I certainly would not compare uh, the suffering that comes with physical recovery and uh, illness, um, I've become more attuned to those who suffer for reasons uh, that could have been avoided. And th- in this case, we're talking about uh, fellow believers, in this case in China, but certainly places all around the world. Uh, I received the publication from Voice of the Martyrs, and I so appreciate being reminded and kept up to date with what's going on in the church uh, elsewhere, particularly the persecuted church. And I wanted to share this particular story with you, and I hope uh, time will permit. When Leo was arrested for distributing Bibles in China, now some of you might recall I had the opportunity to do that, but with little threat of serious um, repercussion, I would have been sent home. When these Chinese believers do it, they do it recognizing it could cost them everything. Well, Voice of the Martyrs workers were concerned that he might spend the next 10 years in prison. But by God's grace, um, prosecutors reduced the charges against him. And after his release, he shared his experience with Voice of the Martyrs. And he writes this. The printing company uh, called me on Friday afternoon to tell me that the police had seized um, factory records and knew that I had commissioned the printing of several thousand unofficial uh, Bibles. Uh, The printer who had been working on the Bible printing job for about a month uh, planted or rather planned to finish the job the next day. But police uh, shut down all printing operations after the raid. At that point, I knew I was in big trouble where police asked me to come in for questioning the next day. I expected to be arrested, but my options were limited. I could go in and speak with the police or I could go into hiding. After hours of interrogation, the police took me to a detention center. When I uh, reached the cell, I was shocked to see 50 to 60 people crammed into a a space about 500 square feet. Two men moved a little um, to make room for me, but I was unable to lie on my back. 
I could only lie on my side. I felt very calm before entering the detention center, but now I was really uh, flustered. How could I spend my time here? How could I get uh, along with so many people? I didn't sleep my first night, but I gradually adapted to the life in the detention center uh, despite panic and fear. There were all kinds of people in the cell, including drug traffickers, swindlers, thieves, smugglers, and rapists. The days were very structured. Eat, exercise, do activity, sit, watch TV, shower, and sleep, all at specific times. On the fourth day of detention, my attorney came to visit. He was the first visitor I received after being detained. I felt relieved because at least I knew my family was aware of where I was, warning me that I should prepare for the the worst 10 years. The attorney told me it, it might be a month before I was officially arrested. Then came the waiting. I watched as many other prisoners were arraigned in court, uh, but I was never called. Authorities refused to um, uh, the bail offered from my wife. And uh, on the 34th day of my detention, my arrest warrant was finally called. Now I was uh, prepared for the, the long term. I never expected to go to jail. And the situation there was far worse than I could have imagined. The food was hard to swallow one steamed bun for breakfast and rice uh, with boiled vegetables for lunch and dinner. If you wanted better food, you could uh, buy some pickles or chili sauce with your own money. We slept on a board on the cement um, on the floor. In winter, we had uh, quilts so dirty that you couldn't tell what color they were. They smelled so foul and moldy that sometimes I had to plug my nose just to sleep. With so many people in one cell, Conflict was inevitable. Some people were injured or even killed, but praise the Lord, no one bothered me. I was very anxious uh, my first month in jail, worrying about my uncertain future. But after everyone was asleep, I could uh, have my own quiet time to pray to God. Sometimes I prayed, O Lord, all that I have done was for you. Why have you allowed me to face persecution? Is it because my faith is small that you Um, that you test me, or is it because you are preparing me for a new mission? Even though I was not sure how God would use me in the future, I believe uh, he would save me and set me free. Little by little, my heart calm. And I I just want to emphasize, he questioned why God would allow such a thing to happen, but then he immediately remembered God's character and was certain that God was going to use this in some way, either to develop and build his character or prepare him for future ministry, a lesson that I'm learning uh, along the way as well. Then the coronavirus pandemic began. The detention center uh, stopped all connections from the outside, including letter writing, gifts of uh, clothes and money from loved ones and uh, attorney visits. During the lockdown, I received my indictment with charges that carried a penalty of up to three years in prison. Since court hearings were suspended during the the coronavirus outbreak, my case didn't come before the uh, court for eight months. When the uh, trial finally did come before the court and the uh, trials resumed, government attorneys miraculously downgraded the charges against me. And in the end, I was sentenced to a year in prison. That year in the detention center was a period of physical, mental and spiritual training for me. As I experienced my first uh, hearing, second hearing, and then my release, I always had peace. I knew that God, whom I depended on, would give, would save me. Now, when I recall those things, I think of it as life training, 
God will not let this training be in vain. God will show me his will for the future. And this experience will be my source of faith and my motivation to move forward. What an encouragement to hear from someone whose suffering was not a result of anything he had done except to be obedient to what the Lord had called him to do and to recognize God's character in the middle of it, what God allows for his good purpose. And then I wanted to share a prayer from the voice of the martyr, prayers for China's Christians. Our Father in heaven, we join with our persecuted Christian family members in China to declare the holiness of your name above every name. Our desire is that your mission, your redemption purpose will be accomplished in China, no matter the opposition it faces. Father, we ask that every need of persecuted Chinese Christians will be met, food, housing, friendships, Bibles, and that they will be comforted when they are separated from spouses and children by the uh, imprisonment for their bold witness. Move in the hearts of mistreated believers so that they may reflect Christ's model of forgiveness. May they be ambassadors of your grace to those who try to silence them. Father, as light um, dispels darkness, cause the light of your gospel truth to dispel all evil and deliver our Chinese Christian brothers and sisters from those who would wish them harm. May your kingdom advance and your name be glorified in and through our persecuted Christian family members in Christ, in China, in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. He is at work everywhere in the life of every believer in every circumstance for their good and for his glory and for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Coming up, we're going to talk with Mo Aiken. She's the author of Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God, published by Baker Books. And then we'll be back to wrap things up in our final segment of today's program. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm glad you're with us because we're going to talk about a subject that can be a little bit touchy for some of us, either because we don't necessarily understand the concept or we don't quite know how to get to where we want to be. My next guest, who is the author of Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God, she writes that we're made for intimacy, spiritual intimacy with, intimacy with God that brings oneness and bears powerful fruit. We were made to know him and to be known by him fully. So the question is, why do we so often feel burned out, distanced, and disheartened? Well, my next guest is Mo Aiken. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She's back with a new book, Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. She invites readers on a journey into an active communion with him. The book's written for people who feel disconnected from God, who feel burned out from religion, or desire to understand what it means to actually have a relationship with God. They hunger for more in the faith. Well, the blueprint of the book is uh, the blueprint our creator has given us, dynamic intimacy with God. What stands in opposition to that model can prevent us from fully experiencing what he has in store for us. Well, my next guest is the New York Times bestselling author of Wreck My Life and Sex, Jesus, and the Conversations, The Church for God. 
Mo Aiken, who is Mo Isom. She collaborates for the kingdom with Bold Life Initiative, a ministry that exists to challenge, encourage, and equip Christian followers to pursue holy and bold lives. And her family team maintains a thriving nationwide speaking ministry and facilitates a faith-centered blog that has garnered millions of views to date. She and her husband, Jeremiah, they live with their three sons, soon to be four, by the way, in Atlanta, Georgia. Mo, thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate it. Yeah, we're a week away from number four, so it's uh, (laughs) all hands on deck over here. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Again, congratulations. You know, we use the word intimacy a lot, and in certain contexts, we think we have a pretty good idea of what that means. But can we define the term intimacy in the context of our relationship with God? I mean, he knows everything about us. Is that what the scripture refers to uh, as intimacy, that he knows us, while we may or may not know him very well? What What are we looking at in terms of the goal of our relationship with Christ? Yes, the beauty of true intimacy, even as we think about it in the context of uh, a marriage relationship, right? It is a mutual knowing and being known. It is vulnerability. It's transparency. It's a oneness that comes from, um, man, really being drawn together and pulling back the layers of one another, learning of one another and exploring one another at greater depth. So, There was a season, a time where I was doing a lot of great things for the kingdom, ministering, traveling, Um, man, a wife, a mom. It it felt like doing a lot for God, but it was like my spirit came up for air and felt so far from God, felt so disconnected and hungry for his presence and um, burnt out, to be honest, because we can... Uh, do a lot, but if we're not connected to that true power source, our our first love, um, then that fruit we bear is really by our own efforts. When he says, no, draw near to me, I will draw near to you, and uh, I want to know you and for you to know me, and the fruit that comes from that, and that's that spirit-conceived fruit that builds the kingdom and um, that we're sustained by. So Mm -hmm. the truth of intimacy is it's dynamic. It is um, mutual. It's a choice to continue to engage. And it so beautifully transforms everything when we understand it rightly. You know, this notion of intimacy, uh, I think, repels us from pursuing God. And it also makes us long for that. On the one hand, we long to be known. On the other hand, we fear being known. Is that part of what prevents us from pressing in that um, we'll be exposed that the worst parts of us will somehow um, uh, create an impediment in our relationship with God, which is just contrary to what Scripture encourages us to do. But is that part of what prevents us from pressing into God as He um, moves toward us? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so many encounters um, that we've had in our own lives or experiences. Think of, you know, authority figures that have been over us or maybe – Uh, relationships with our parents or intimate relationships we've had with other people that have left us hurt or confused or wounded or our perception of um, trusting is violated or, you know, any number of unhealthy relationships with Mm -hmm. man 
uh, with one another, these things deeply impress on us our understanding of intimacy. So, man, then here in the scriptures, well, the invitation is to be intimate with God. And we're like, I don't want anything to do with that because that left me hurt or I laid myself there for someone, you know, my heart and they left me, they rejected me. Um, it leads us to believe that God will love us the same as other relationships have been. Um, but the truth is that his, his love is actually perfect and it's abiding, and it stays, and it's long-suffering, and it's gracious, and it's kind, and he doesn't force himself upon us. He um, reveals himself, and he gives us a choice uh, to choose to engage with him. And a big part of writing this book and even navigating uh, healing for myself as as I began to explore true intimacy with God was processing through, hey, why am I terrified to be vulnerable? Why mm-hmm. does every time, you know, sin is revealed in me, do I just shut down or want to run from uh, that engagement when really the word says the conviction from the Holy Spirit is, is a work of the Spirit. It's a good thing. It's meant to do a beautiful heart surgery on us, you know, to draw what's in the darkness out into light. And to set us free, because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. But a lot of the times, because we're confused to, to the dynamic layers of intimacy, we just want what feels good or makes us feel good and happy. And if it doesn't, we don't really want much to do with it. We miss out on this sanctifying, transformative love that is uh, layered and dynamic, but is sure. And man, um, is good on its word and promises us of uh, its staying power. We're talking with Mo Aiken. She's the author of Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. In the introduction you write, let me start by sharing a truth your heart is likely longing to be reminded. You were made to know intimacy with God. You were created to commune with your Creator. Tuned to know that sound, the sound of the Good Shepherd's voice, designed to experience His dignifying touch, and sculpted by Him to house His perfect and powerful Spirit. You, you are who He loves, and God has made a way for you to know Him and be known by Him, both now and forevermore. That's such a beautiful reminder of what we are intended to be. But you also write that intimacy comes with great cost. What is the cost that we might expect as we follow God's invitation to press into Him? Yeah, it's it's the reality of, um, again, as we liken it to a marriage covenant, it's the reality of a mutual commitment. Um, what, what marriage doesn't really look like, um, though we see this a lot around us, is basically, I, I choose you and I hope you keep me happy. And if I'm not happy, then uh, I change my mind. But the, the truth of healthy covenant is a mutual exchange. You give all for me, I give all for you. And we know that Christ gave everything for us. Mm-hmm. He laid down his life to save us, to redeem us. And so this um, mutual engagement is that we're not abusive of grace or picking and choosing when we want to claim God and living our lives, you know, a different way the other days of the week, but it's a mutual laying down of our life. What would you have of me, Lord? Where would you have me go? How, what would you point out in me that, you know, I, I should turn from? 
how would you use me to build your kingdom? And that uh, picture of, of mutual exchange looks a lot like the work of the cross, which was self-sacrifice. And it's what it looks like a lot in our lives as well. There is cost of um, our wants sometimes, our will, to align ourselves with his heart, his way, and his works. And um, while it seems like, man, I don't want to think about the cost. That just seems like a lot. I think the beautiful invitation is to also focus on the great gain. Because mm-hmm. when we will begin to um, live in step in oneness with him in that way, yes, there's cost. But the gain that comes to see the kingdom built, to see captives set free, to see people's lives transformed by his love, to see the work that he wants to do in and through us makes every moment of it worth it. And so this intimacy not only transforms us from the inside out, but it also is what empowers us by his grace to love our neighbors well. And are those not the greatest two commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all and love your neighbor as yourself. And um, the beauty of intimacy with him is that it only heals and helps restore our understanding of right-natured intimacy with one another. And I think we'll see transformation over the body of Christ when we embrace these two things and uh, are learn to love and to speak and carry truth well because we've been loved and we've been ministered to by truth in that hidden place with God. Yes, yes. Once again, the book is Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. I'm having a conversation with Mo Aiken. We'll continue that conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And I'm continuing my conversation with Mo Aiken. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book is Fully Known. An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. It's a, it's a concept that many of us long for and in fully known how we get there and the benefits of the intimacy that God invites us to uh, with himself is explained in a way that I think will inspire all of us to want to rush toward him as, um, as he uh, calls us. Now, I know many of us are very busy doing kingdom work. You mentioned that one of the uh, inspirations for the book was the fact that you were busy doing a lot of things, but there was something lacking. What do you say to those who feel, well, they're burned out, either with service mm-hmm. to the church, with Christianity in general, um, but there's that that lack of intimacy that fuels joyful ministry moving forward. Um, and, you know, we just, we're ready to just give up. Right. Well, I would first say it's the very place I found myself, like you mm-hmm. mentioned. And so I don't think it's unfamiliar ground for those who um, are navigating the faith. I, I actually think it's an area we don't speak into enough. And so a lot of people become confused, disheartened, kind of shamed around. Well, I, I, I do believe in Jesus, but this uh, is exhausting or this, this can't be the fullness of what this blood-bought grace is able uh, to do in my life. And we wrestle sort of this shame in that spot. But I think sometimes it takes us stepping back and, and bending a knee and slowing down to realize, oh, my works are preceding my time mm. with him, my intimacy mm-hmm. with him. How many people in the ministry burn out because there are so many things to do, but they don't know how to just be 
with God, or it is not priority to simply be with him in his presence because our task list runs so deep. We don't have the time. Uh, But the reality is that he has great works in store for our lives, but they are the works that are born out of that intimate, quiet, prioritized space. And those works, those works conceived by the Spirit, those are sustainable because we begin building the kingdom of God as he instructs, you know, by his hand versus working so hard to uh, do what we think is best and really burning out in the process. And it's countercultural, right? It's even offensive to many to say, hey, uh, maybe we Sabbath, (laughs) maybe we settle down, maybe we rest at his feet, maybe you step away for a while. But if we look even at the story of Mary and Martha, whom I love both, and Jesus loved both of those women, we give Martha a hard rap a lot of the time, but She was laboring from good intention, from a pure heart place that wanted to serve the Lord. But what Jesus says in that exchange when Mary asks him to rebuke, or when Martha asks him to rebuke Mary for simply sitting at his feet, he says, Martha, you are concerned about so many things. But but if you're going to be concerned about anything, let it be this. Mary has found it and it cannot be taken from her. And I just see in the scriptures this illumination of actual permission from Jesus to concern ourselves with something. But that concern is not, how am I going to fit in Jesus? You know, how am I going to fit in my time with God amongst all my other demands? The concern kind of flips of, how am I going to fit in the needs of life outside of this prioritization of being at his feet? Mm. And he says that what Mary has found there it can't be taken from her. And I don't know about you, but I, I want the treasures of heaven that can't be taken, no matter what the demands of life are, this world looks like, or you know the circumstances around me. That prioritization, that posture of being with him is um, ours, and it, and it can't be stolen. It, it can't be taken. And um, I think it is, it's a truth that many of us need to wrestle with and receive that it's okay to slow down. It's okay to stop, man. This book took me two and a half years because he convicted me in the process of writing it. And I had to stop for a while mm. <laughs> to just be with him. So I could actually bring forth the words that he intended, not just that my own best efforts could work up. But that's a hard sell for people, (laughs) for our culture where we're goers and doers and everything can be done so fast and our schedules can be so full. Uh, But it's a holy sell to those who really want to know life and life abundantly with him. Yeah, a life of surrender where he's the priority. Now, some of us do, well, the minimum, if you will, just enough uh, to pursue uh, the relationship with God, but don't want to go any further um, or have to. What do we miss when we settle for the least of what's available to us in our relationship with Christ, as opposed to doing what you just described, making the choice Mm -hmm. to believe what the scriptures say, that intimacy with him far outweighs in value and virtually anything else um, than uh, just pursuing what we are familiar with, what we can do on our own. And, you know, with the guarantee, well, I'm going to get to heaven. It's just, I may not know the the king of heaven as well as some others who are Mm -hmm. there. 
well, that's what we have to wrestle with. That was the very scripture that challenged me and brought things deeper in my heart. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, where Jesus says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, only those who do the will of my father. And many will say to me, well, you know, did we not prophesy? We cast demons, we perform miracles. But to them, I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Away from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I began to wrestle with this scripture because for a while I dismissed it as, oh, it's just non-believers, you know, that it's speaking to. But he's saying, no, there are many who will call me Lord, but they even go on to argue their, their great works, right? But his response is, yeah, but I never knew you. And so Mm -hmm. the prioritization really of the gospel there, the assuredness, the day we stand before him that we wouldn't tremble in fear, but that we would have been made perfect in his love, as the word says, is that the priority is to know him. This word, this uh, in Hebrew means yada. It is um, the same version of the word used when it said like, and Joseph had not yet known Mary, or the man took his wife and he knew her. It implies a deep, connected oneness. And so when I began to understand that, a scary piece of scripture actually became a beautiful invitation. But it was sobering in the reality that um, just claiming his name and then abusing his grace, it it doesn't make evident that the gospel has transformed our lives. You know, many doing just the bare minimum, we've sort of bought into, I think, a a cultural cell maybe of uh, the gospel. But I want to be sure, I want to know in my heart, in my spirit, that that he was my, my life source, that my life was one with him, that my days weren't wasted or I wasn't deceived. Uh, but that I took accountability for my own walk and didn't just uh, perform, but I'll stand before him and hear well done because I knew his voice and I followed him and I received his love and I poured out my life in response. And um, it's so much deeper. I, I think a lot of the times, especially when we are walking in maybe a place of that more shallow faith or, um, maybe that cultural buy-in, and we say Lord, but uh, it's sort of a, a compartmentalized piece of our days. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that comes from a heart posture of maybe not even realizing the full and powerful and abundant access that we have to the Spirit of the living God, uh, as if we have to go through someone else, as if we could only learn from, you know, uh, who, whosoever looks like they're such a strong Christian. No, we have the very bread of life, the word of God, right at our fingertips. I mean, you can have it as an app on your phone. We have the spirit of the living God eager to commune individually and uniquely and specifically with each one of us. And so if there's someone listening who maybe finds themselves in that place, I would just compel them into depths, into the deeper waters. There is more just as the excerpt you read from the book, we were made to know our maker, created to commune with him. And this isn't reserved for an elite few. This is the invitation to all by way of the gospel. He wants to speak to you. He wants 
to know you. He wants to guide you and uh, answer your cries, your questions. And you have that very same access that I have, uh, that, that your pastor has, that whosoever around you has. Um, it's just the, the willingness to receive that and to um, draw near to that invitation versus running from it or dismissing it as unimportant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the book is beautifully written. It certainly has challenged me, and I'm going to go back and uh, study through many portions of it. The book is fully known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. Mo Aiken, thank you for taking those couple of years to write the book and to listen to and be guided by the Spirit. And uh, I'll certainly keep you in prayer as you're just days away from son number four. Uh, Really appreciate (laughs) your time today. Thank you so much. Be blessed. You too. Again, Mo Aiken, fully known, an invitation to true intimacy with God. A great book. And during this season where we have perhaps a little more time, it's a great opportunity to take stock of where we stand in our relationship with God and if we're taking full advantage of all that he has made available through to us. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I wanted to make sure before we signed off today that you uh, know your isms, because in this day and age, there's a whole new vocabulary. You need to know which group you fit into or don't fit into or what the other groups are talking about or what they mean. And I thought uh, uh, Robin Smith writing for Patriot Post made some rather uh, poignant suggestions as we're trying to navigate through this um, uh, new, well, again, vocabulary. Um, ideas that are sometimes communicated using words that are misused or mislabeled or misunderstood. So I wanted to make sure you know your isms. Well, in the public arena, significant um, terms are often misused and misunderstood. In the last few years, the rise of socialism and the Democrat Party has brought the very word socialism into the daily lexicon as uh, Democrats are promising free stuff for everyone without explaining how all of it's going to be funded other than vague promises and or threats to tax the rich. Now, we must assume that the rich have an unending uh, supply of wealth that we can draw upon without harming ourselves in the process. So what's the difference between socialism and communism and some of the other isms, fascism, capitalism? Well, the left criticizes the right for being fascist. But in reality, most of the right uh, are working to establish capitalism or free markets that emphasize private property and personal opportunity via policies that cut regulations and honor work. There is um, obvious confusion about these terms because fascism is, well, an ideology more often held on the left. Well, there's a useful parable dating back to 1944. It was published in the Modern Language Journal, and it goes a little something like this. Socialism. You have two cows. The government takes one and gives it to your neighbor. Communism. You have two cows. You give them to the government and the government then gives them or rather gives you some milk. Fascism. You have two cows. You give them to the government and the government then sells you some milk. Capitalism. You have two cows. You sell one and buy a bull. Nazism. You have two cows. The government takes both and shoots you. 
So I want to make sure you have your isms right. Let me just repeat that. Socialism, you have two cows. The government takes one and gives it to your neighbor. Communism, you have two cows. You give them to the government and the government then gives you some milk. Fascism, you have two cows. You give them to the government and the government then sells you some milk. Capitalism, you have two cows. You sell one and you buy a bull. Nazism, you have two cows. The government takes both and shoots you. Well, when looking at the cow parable, we see clearly that in the system of socialism, communism, and fascism, the government controls decisions regarding wealth, work, redistribution, not just distribution, and property rights. Harry, um, I think his name is Binswanger, explained almost a decade ago that these three are best categorized as statism, where individual rights and freedoms are uh, minimized and even ignored. Um, Ayn Rand, the Russian-American philosopher and author of Atlas Shrugged, observed that statism means that one's life and work belong to the state, to society, to the group, the gang, the race, the nation, and that the state may dispose of him in any way it pleases for the sake of whatever it deems to be its own tribal collective good. Well, statism appears in the um, policies and politics of the left, which promises health care, education, universal incomes and other goods and services paid for and provided by the government, which, of course, doesn't generate income itself. It takes that or is given that by its citizens. Moreover, despite the loud cries uh, of the Democrats, that Republicans and those on the political right are fascists. Democrats are instead the ones implementing a fascist tool when they are when they use censorship, a critical element to feed the American people, the current leftist political line. Now, while fascism technically leaves private property in the hands of individuals, the oppressive governments, uh, it controls, regulates and dictates wealth, production and redistribution with no freedom of speech or right to dissent. Now, just years ago, a few years ago, it would have. Uh, seemed like a gross overstatement that this would apply in any way to the United States, but it certainly is proving itself to apply now. The cancel culture of today's social media, the tactics of the left to censure, silence, and control have more in common with the practices of the National Socialist German Workers' Party than a constitutional republic instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed to secure certain unalienable rights endowed by their creator, our creator. Remember, in its day, National Socialism sought to replace, um, uh, sought a replacement rather to free market capitalism with the collectivist uh, 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 and, and good of the ruling elite of the selected political class. Well, by definition and practice, socialism, communism, and fascism are statist economies. Now, in the economy of the United States, even when led by policies on the center-right, a free market economy defined as capitalism, do you see businesses and um, sectors of the economy with minimal control consistently and fairly regulated? The answer is, unfortunately, no. It's actually a, a, um, corpor- a corporatism that's be, uh, becoming the accepted way of uh, life and commerce in America. Big corporations and special interest groups petition and influence government, requesting special regulations, subsidies, reduced taxes and preferences. Government permits and practices um, representational monopolies uh, and gives preferential protections for the biggest businesses and interests. And they are often influenced by special interest groups who pressure them into moving in one direction or another. Well, how would a government characteristic of corporatism Deal with your cows, 
you have two cows, the government licenses, regulates, and taxes them while subsidizing big cows are us to mass produce milk. You've, um, you're free, uh, forced to compete with big cow, which touts its woke policies and practices in response to social media pressures to garner more favor with politicians who dole out favorable, um, caveats or carve outs or carrots, grants and tax breaks. You're forced to work at another job and sell your two cows and buy milk from the company whose policies you don't support, but your taxes subsidize. So that's sort of the long form of the same illustration. Plainly, the only ism that Americans should permit is capitalism. All others have failed throughout history, and that's no bovine scatology. Well, it's something to think about as we're watching our nation change in some favorable ways. I don't want to dis. Uh, dismiss everything, but certainly in ways that do not reflect the principles of this constitutional republic. Now, there are ways to amend the Constitution uh, to change the rules, but I think it's important for us to understand what the rules are, uh, the proposed changes, uh, how they are defined, the role that government plays, the role that we will ultimately find ourselves playing with or without a cow of our own as the process moves forward. PragerU is a great place to educate oneself on a variety of these topics, and I would highly recommend it if you're looking to become better educated on uh, many of the elements we discussed here um, and that you're reading and watching in the wider world. Well, we are out of time, and I want to take a moment to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for the uh, for making The Georgine Rice Show a part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.